It was a two-sided marketplace, an employer platform really, and the family being the employer looking to hire a caregiver and a caregiver looking for a job. And the, the secret sauce really was to focus on quality, to focus on ensuring that there, there was a sustainable, livable wage that the caregiver could really pursue as a career. So we eventually didn't allow, uh, when it dawned on us on how important our influence and mission was is to not allow below minimum wage posting of jobs. That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. Sheila Lirio-Marcello was founder and former CEO and chairwoman of Care.com, the world's largest marketplace for care. Sheila has a long history of founding and leading brands that champion women. Sheila founded Care.com to address a problem she faced as a working mother, finding care for her two young children and ailing parents. As a Filipino-American, Sheila shares a unique perspective on what it's like to be a female leader and entrepreneur. Sheila is used to dealing with implicit biases that women of color in leadership roles often face, but she has adopted empathy and authenticity to combat prejudice and help her success. Marcelo has now become one of only 22 women to ever found and lead a company to IPO. She has been honored with numerous accolades, including being named among the top 10 women entrepreneurs by Fortune. In 2021, Sheila was appointed as executive chairwoman to The Wing, where she leverages her experience leading a mission-driven business to ensure that diversity, equity, and inclusion are priorities for the brand. In this role, Sheila also shepherds The Wing's efforts in ensuring that women have the resources they need to succeed and fulfill their professional goals at a time when the COVID-19 pandemic has disproportionately affected working women and mothers. I started with Sheila by asking her what it was like being an immigrant coming to the United States of America. Robert, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, you know, born and raised in the Philippines, you know, it's it's interesting that um, growing up there, it's one of the few countries that the World Economic Forum gender report has indicated that has a narrow gender gap where we had a female president, we had lots of strong role models. And for me, my dad was always sort of the teddy bear emotional dad. And my mom was the tough tiger mom, typical Asian stereotypical tiger mom. So not having the typical stereotypes and growing up in the Philippines with strong female role models made me just really open-minded about pursuing a lot of different things that were very risk-taking. My dad taught me math early, so I didn't have this notion that somehow I couldn't um, advance in business was another one. And I think the third too is, you know, in, in fifth grade, my parents decided we'd moved to the U.S. for a brief period when I was little, and then they decided to bring us back home to the Philippines. And they enrolled us in a small Catholic school in the province, my younger brother and I. And I learned to grow up with kids from all 
uh, classes of economic standing. And I remember learning to uh, use the coconut husk and cleaning floors to clean the classrooms with all the kids. And it just gave me a sense of understanding the plight of underserved developed economies too, which has been sort of uh, near and dear to my heart as I pursued my life. Um, And so that exposure is one of the best gifts my parents ever gave me. What was that like, I guess, coming here and then going back to the Philippines and I guess eventually coming back? Yeah. And I think most immigrant stories is this sense of finding who you are. Moving here when I was six years old, I was confused and moved to Houston, Texas. And I and I remember seeing both white people and African-Americans and looking at them and saying, why do they all look alike when I was little? And then lo and behold, when I go back to the Philippines, when I was 10 and I looked at Filipino women all around me and I said, they all look alike. So <laughs> I, I felt a little confused and out of place, but it also gives you a sense of resilience of, of finding the inner you early at a young age to have that kind of exposure to different peoples and different thinking. So again, just a a great gift that my, my, my parents provide me that opportunity. I know if I'm correct, you went on after your schooling in high school to study at Harvard. I did. Yes. I ended up getting my, um, my JD MBA from, from Harvard. Yes. So you had to have done pretty well. uh, (laughs) I imagine (laughs) within your Second, in your uh, uh, education uh, prior to, to getting there, was, was there a drive inside of you that you wanted to go to, let's say, the top school in the country? Or was that something that was one of your dreams? Yeah, really interesting. I just saw my parents recently this past weekend. And my dad, as he is just an incredible feminist, patted my mom on the back and he said, the reason the kids are where they're at is because of my mom's dream for us. I get emotional about it, um, listening as my, my parents are aging. But part of that is really, my parents met at a very young age. They were high school sweethearts and never finished college, Robert, and unlike their peers. And so my mother had a dream to ensure that we were able to really pursue our education and fulfill that. So they actually, from that's a Catholic school. They then sent us to uh, an American boarding school, uh, which was very challenging. We did the international baccalaureate degree, all six of us, that got me advanced credits actually in college, uh, which was really actually necessary. Not that I planned it. I ended up getting pregnant in college. And so my mother and my parents were upset thinking that, oh my goodness, our daughter, that they had hoped that I would be a lawyer someday. <laughs> um, they thought that maybe I wasn't going to pursue it. But of course, from college, I worked really, really hard. I gave birth between my sophomore and junior year in college. I went on to apply to Harvard Law School and they took me. So, you know, I followed through sort of in, in my parents' dream because Robert, we grew up with designated professions in my family. There was going to be the doctor, the dentist, the accountant, and I <laughs> was a designated lawyer. So I did go on to go to Harvard Law School, but within the first year, realized I really wanted to be an entrepreneur. So then I applied to Harvard Business School, and thankfully I got it in. <laughs> wow, you so, spent a lot of time at Harvard, and um, you did become an entrepreneur. And and it sounds like you were able to realize at a young age, really, that your passion was to create and build a business. Was that, was that something you were pretty sure of at that time? 
Yeah. You know, I, I was pretty driven. It's funny. Um, I was interviewed. I remember in my JDMBA program uh, for the Harvard magazine. And I, I remember, even though I was going to go to monitor company and do a strategy consulting job, I had said in that interview that I always had a dream to actually start a company that would give back and help the Philippines in some way. And so I think I was, I was driven by this concept of creating solutions to help people, even I think at a young age, my parents were entrepreneurs. So I felt like I could, I could look up to them, but as you probably know, some of the Asian stereotypes is that the challenge of entrepreneurship creates risk. And so my parents always wanted us to be professionals with a steady income corporate job. That's the doctor, dentist, lawyer kind of a pursuit that they had us focus on because as entrepreneurs that they struggled at times, the ups and downs and the challenges to work, work-life family balance and those things, their, their feeling was it'd be an easier life if you were, instead you got a corporate job. But no, I, I followed the DNA <laughs> and really focused on uh, my passion. Uh, and I just... It was so inspirational to me, just watching them. It wasn't the challenges. It was the solution to problems. It was the creativity, it was the building of things. Those are the kinds of things that, that just it was just so in my heart. It was always a drumbeat there. It sounds like they were really supportive, even though they had this grand vision, right, for you and your siblings and, and for a better life. And, and even though they were entrepreneurs, it's amazing that that's, you know, and I understand it because coming from, the life of an entrepreneur being one, you know, it's like a roller coaster ride, right? And like, but it sounds like when you told them this and and said that's where you wanted to go and pursue, they were supportive. Yeah, I would say. I mean, there were some challenges. You know, when I got pregnant, and my husband said that. I remember my my father uh, talked to. I've been married to the same man, and he took the phone and and asked Ron. He said, "Well, what are your intentions?" and Thankfully, Ron said the right things. My intentions are, you know, to ask for your daughter's hand in marriage. And I, I want to promise you that we'll fulfill your, your goals for her to be a lawyer. So all that was sort of a, <laughs> a good thing. So, but there was certainly difficulty as being a Catholic family background from the Philippines that my parents felt uh, there was a period of hardship for us where Ron and I were sort of on our own that really inspired us with care.com when we, we both worked there. But back to your question. I think that when my parents started to just see what I was very passionate about, they were very supportive. But remember, I did say my mother was a tiger mom. There were moments when I remember working a difficult schedule and kids and all of that. And, and I was in my 20s and my mom, my mom and dad were staying with me. And, and my mom said to me when I was crying one night and I was just doing too much. And my mother said, I think you just need to pull it together. You know, when I was your age, I had six kids. You got it pretty easy. <laughs> you know? So it was a little bit of a wake up call saying, okay, time enough to be a victim, stop, stop being a victim and just kind of, kind of, kind of focus. So yeah, supportive and, and I think real, you know, my parents were always really authentic about things with me. It sounded or sounds like they gave you a lot of strength and confidence. I've now read psychology books, you know, when my own kids and trying to figure out how to, to raise them and how to be good parents, that really big difference of raising kids and instilling in them this sense of positivity, reinforcing compliments, sending lots of signals of understanding and love um, that builds inner confidence throughout life. And, it, and it's something that I've, I've certainly uh, adopted in trying to raise my own kids. At least I try. Um, certainly always testing my own patients. They're all grown men now, but 
I definitely think it, it has made a difference around moments when I question myself. I think about those reinforcements, uh, and especially in entrepreneurship, as you pointed out. Yeah. So, so care.com. Yeah. <laughs> How does that come about? How uh, did it start? So as I said, I got pregnant in college. Our son, Brian, who's now 30 years old, was really an inspiration. You know, my husband's parents were deceased. Um, my parents were living in the Philippines and we were sort of on our own. And it was a real struggle, Robert, to, to pursue, finish undergrad and then decide to just pursue graduate degrees and all of that on our own. It just was really hard to do that balance. So I think we realized that as as my father also fast forward uh, lived with us to help uh, care for our kids, uh, we quickly realized that my my father needed help too because he was carrying Adam, my younger one, up the stairs, and ended up having a heart attack and fell backwards. And you know I remember getting the call from my mom at work, and uh, it was just stressful trying to do this, what we call in the care uh, industry, uh, being sandwiched between childcare and senior care. And I started to realize, wait, I, I'm looking for care for my family now using the yellow pages, but I was working at a technology company at the time. And I said, how do I take this experience, this education, this knowledge of business, knowledge of law? How do I apply it to other people needing this? Because as I peeled the onion, I realized I wasn't alone looking for, for help. And eventually millions. And then by the time I left care, we were in 20 countries, 35 million members. And so it was really trying to solve a, a real problem. What were some of those early challenges? You know, anytime you're launching business and it sounds like you were doing this just on your own to start or, or with your husband, what were some of those initial challenges you really faced? And was there any point early on where you were like, you know what, maybe I should go be a lawyer or something like that. You know, I, interestingly enough, felt leading up to care.com, I had put the business plan on pause and was insecure about pursuing it because I was worried I was going to be judged as a focused on a female business. But I went on to pursue it. And I remember having mentors saying to me that I was ready and it was a really good plan, but somehow I needed that uh, reinforcement. And then when I was there, I quickly realized that the support of my co-founders, Dave Kropinski, who ended up running technology, uh, Donna Levin running operations, and Zenobia Mochala running marketing, between the four of us just felt we were prepared. It didn't feel that way going in. There's always this insecurity that you kind of judge yourself. But as we went in and we started building the service, and I remember my co-founder Donna saying, we have to build this service for us. If we trust it for our own children, then, then members will trust it. And so that just became sort of our mantra that we repeated to ourselves every day. And I remember we even invested in safety features at the very beginning because we wanted to use a service for our own families, you know, our own siblings that needed care for their own children. And I think just that real authentic focus on solving a problem for ourselves and living in the shoes of our users gave us confidence, gave us confidence that we're onto something that just purpose-driven, maniacal focus, just again, reinforced. And of course, having a great team that we're all working it, working on it together. And of course, my husband was also part of that founding team. He's sort of the hidden gem always in, in, in many of the businesses we start. He actually bought the domain. He was always quietly helping me 
in the back and always supportive, but he was part of that founding team too. Well, he didn't live up to his promise to your father about, uh, (laughs) well, he did say, he did say to send her to law school and he (laughs) did did support me through all of that. (laughs) So care.com, give us a quick overview of your major company now, public and I know you're on to other things, but but give us the quick synopsis of exactly care.com and your original plan and, and, and what you did. Sure. It was pretty simple, Robert. It was a two-sided marketplace, an employer platform, really, and the family being the employer looking to hire a caregiver and a caregiver looking for a job. And the, the secret sauce really was to focus on quality to focus on ensuring that there there was a sustainable, livable wage that the caregiver could really pursue as a career. And so we eventually didn't allow, uh, when it dawned on us on how important our influence and mission was, is to not allow below minimum wage posting of jobs, educating families about the importance of that. We then partnered with Aijin Poo, I just saw here last night, who runs the National Domestic Workers Alliance and really advocating for caregivers. The other thing that the platform ended up doing, and I get thanked by so many people today that I meet and how they use, they've used it, even I've, I've left now for a few years, is this sense that it was a real affordable solution because uh, it was a subscription service and uh, we charge you a monthly fee or you could do an annual or six month package. And, and care is always, there's always turnover of it. And so that model worked for people where we didn't charge a fee in between. And caregiving, I always said that care.com served the chief household officer, which often entails numerous services, child care, senior care, pet care, tutoring, housekeeping. Uh, So we eventually extended to a lot of other verticals. As I said, Donna had this mantra that if you trust us with your children, you'll trust us with everything else and gave us the earned the right to expand into other areas for growth. We then eventually, in 2012 and 2013, uh, ventured overseas, eventually expanding uh, by the time I left to, as I mentioned, 20 countries. We then also, around 2012, 2013, it was a busy time pre-IPO. We also acquired a company called Breedlove & Associates that Stephanie and Bill Breedlove founded, terrific entrepreneurs that we partnered with and integrated, allowing uh, the employer, the family, to now also be compliant in paying their nanny taxes and provided a a payment solution and platform. We eventually, even ahead of Uber and other gig economy platforms, decided that, well, how do we continue to support the family as the employer and at the same time support the caregiver, provided access to healthcare. We created the first ever portable uh, pooled benefits where numerous families that might hire a caregiver would contribute to that caregiver so that she could buy extra medicine uh, through the pharmacy, uh, get gas, groceries. So finding ways to really help. Very life-fulfilling journey. And it's always hard once you're you're like, you exit your company to find the next thing that has to like really live up to that very uh, purpose-driven company. Because again, it's still, it's still with me today when I meet a lot of families and know that, that the brand and under IAC's uh, ownership now uh, we'll just continue to grow and help help more people. I hope it gets to billions. Yeah, I mean, just mission driven, and like you said, you trust care.com with taking care of your children. I mean, those are everyone's most important, I guess, but that's the most important thing in anyone's lives. So for you to be able to do that, it must have been so rewarding when you would get these positive responses. Oh. And hear about that. 
it still actually chokes me up. I, whether I'm sitting on a plane next to someone, I'm interviewing a candidate, I'm getting introduced to a partner. Uh, doesn't matter. People get on the phone and, and um, it's, it's touched many lives. More from our guest, but first, a word from our sponsors. Brought to you by Bear, an employee-owned international financial services firm. National recognition as a best workplace for women helps Bear to attract and retain top female talent from across the financial industry, helping to ensure consistency and continuity for Baird's individual and institutional clients. More information is available at womenatbaird.com. And we're back. One of the interesting things that I was shocked that you're only one of 22 women to found and eventually lead a company to IPO, which is baffling. What lessons would you say you carry with you that other women can adopt? Sure. Yeah, no, I uh, I remember seeing that media press too. And when I was on the list, I was equally baffled and because I was so heads down in execution. But if I look back now, one of the things that I think in leadership sometimes is when you're executing, you're so focused on trying to create the outcomes that I realized um, sort of midway through the uh, 14 years I was at CARE is that there was a period that dawned on me that the role was more than just touching the lives for care.com of who we serve. And we just talked about how, how just gratifying that is. But I started to realize the advocacy role that I have for female leaders that was going to be important, my advocacy role for caregivers, and my advocacy role to change the perception of how society viewed care, that it wasn't just an issue about love for someone near and dear to us. But it was actually an economic imperative that unless we invested in care and the care infrastructure, because as Ijen would say, it's the care that makes, it is the thing that makes all work possible. It is what drives our economy. And that shift in that awareness for me made me realize that my voice and platform, just like the list of other women on there, was also a responsibility that I had to, I had to take. And so I actually pushed myself to do more in media to get out, to speak. I ended up doing more women's event, but eventually towards the last few years, I stopped going to women's events, Robert. I instead focused on like the Milken Conference, the World Economic Forum. I was trying to get to more men so that we can change that number of 22 women. So I decided that rather than focusing on that list, what was my role to help change that list? How do we get more women on there? And the only way to do that is to recruit more women, more men to help women get on there. Anyways, it's been an interesting journey and it's kind of the next chapter that I, I've pursued now after care.com is how do I help pay it forward either to influence more men or to myself help more women get on there? Yeah. And I want to talk about your, your next chapter and what you've been doing I mean, numerous things that you've been up to in terms of advocacy. And just like you said, though, getting to conferences with men, right? That's always kind of the, that's where you need to go, right? That's who you need to talk to. But I also think, you know, you have a unique perspective as, as I guess, a, a Filipino American. What's it like to be a female leader and entrepreneur and also deal with the <laughs> implicit biases that women of color in leadership roles often face 
And I guess how has adopting empathy and authenticity kind of really helped your success? I think about it. There's probably two stories worth sharing in both. Again, I just, as I go through my journey, just continuous journaling and awareness. I remember we were doing a, a non-deal roadshow. We were just prepping for the IPO. We were flying around the country and um, we were landed in an airport, a private airport, and just been back to back, very little sleep. And I rushed to the bathroom and my team, CTO, CFO, went ahead to the to the room to meet with the investors to greet them. And then uh, coming from the bathroom, uh, Robert, I went straight for the coffee pot. I offered then everybody coffee in the room because I needed to wake up. And by the time they got to me and said, hi, the CTO, hi, the CFO, got to me and the investor said, you must be the analyst from the bank. Very nice to meet you. And they hadn't gotten prepped on the company. And I just looked at him and I shook, shook his hand and I said, I'm Sheila Lirio Marcello. I'm founder, CEO, and chairwoman of care.com. Let's get our meeting started. I didn't, I decided not to embarrass him. And it's, I'm, I'm sort of known to do that around my authenticity and kindness, but I definitely changed his mind, obviously, in that meeting <laughs> on describing the business, knowledge of the business, sticking to the facts and the metrics. But I didn't change my tone. I think it's this empathy and understanding that these biases sometimes people grow up with. And I hope that in, in that meeting, this gentleman would not repeat it again because he, I made him conscious, but with, with an approach of empathy as opposed to banging on the table and being angry. So, but yet the second story I'm going to share is that really interesting. We're doing this interview today and it's sort of the anniversary of the shootings of Asian American women in Atlanta that broke my heart last year. And I started to realize that empathy is important. I get emotional about this, but the advocacy of not misunderstanding that kindness or empathy does not replace the importance of, of respect. And that, that Asians in this model minority myth is, is something we really need to fight. So I joined the Asian American Foundation, the board. It's a united front. Last year, we launched a campaign called CS Unite. I never thought I would take my CEO skills and help co-produce a show, first ever Asian American national show that highlighted a sense of our belonging, that we are American together. So it's interesting you asked me that, that again, in my journey, this awakening that I've had, that you can still be you, you can have that approach. How do you take those skills to really push and pursue your beliefs to get a sense for more people. Because yes, I'm a successful CEO and yes, I could be smart and kind, but I need to use my voice to fight for rights that really matter to everyone. Yeah. I mean, when you discuss this and talk about this, and this show is about entrepreneurship and building businesses, and it's incredible what you've done and understanding to me, it's so much bigger for you. The businesses seem secondary. Obviously, they give you a platform, mm -hmm. but especially for what's going on right now in our world, in our country over the past few years, it just seems like to me, you really recognize that and are putting a ton of your attention towards these types of things that really have the long lasting effects, not just the business. Exactly. And how do you use that platform? Because the platform doesn't always have to be a public facing one. When we launched CS Unite last year, we highlighted, I'm so proud of our Lisa Ling, Daniel De Kim, Fareed Zakaria, um, Naomi Osaka, like um, Jeremy Lin, 
all these amazing role models for people. And I would just the behind the scenes that help execute highlighting them across the, the world. I remember we, we bought out Times Square fully donated with their massive, massive, they'd never been in Times Square, all these successful Asian Americans during May, AAPI Heritage Month. And I just, the sense of pride that I had in that, that effort and that project and that whole team that pulled that off. I can't tell you, Robert, like it was, it's as fulfilling as, as uh, being on a plane and somebody telling me that I helped them in some way with care. Yeah, there is a need (laughs) for it. And um, I will say only one of those person I bet has been in Times Square. Sanity here in New York. Oh my God, Lynn Sanity. And I have to do a plug for him. In retirement, he is doing a a program on Lynn Sanity that is really supporting kind of racial collaboration uh, through sports and as well as sharing food. And at TAF, we're super excited to support him. So I've gotten to know him and he is a gem of a human being. Yeah, it's funny. And you say retirement, he's like 32 years old. But (laughs) that's like the life of a a sport. We've got more to see in him. You better interview him here. He is himself a great social entrepreneur. Yeah, totally. So so let's talk in the time we have left. I know that your newest venture, Proof of Learn, just raised $15 million in funding. So congrats on that. Tell us what Proof to Learn is. Yeah, well, Proof of Learn is still pretty stealth. We just got seed funding of uh, $15 million, as you mentioned, and it's really focused on leveraging the power of blockchain and Web3. Technology has been around. MIT, Pepperdine University has been doing credentialing. It's really just putting a lens on how do we get mass consumer adoption of using this sense of meritocracy and transparency of skills and learning. Um, so that employers can get access uh, to employable people faster and sooner. And people around the world, whether you you are vocationally trained in Africa and you want to prove that you've got a certain skill set, how do we make sure that that is, is, is sort of accessible to people? So that's exciting. But also, as you know, I'm, I'm continuing to support women. Proof of Learn is like this next thing in education, but I'm also playing dual roles. I'm an executive chairwoman at The Wing. It's, it's also another important thing to me. Care.com made time for people to pursue their passions with care and the wing creates sort of a space for women. So it's, it's, it's kind of this great thing. About the wing. So for the, those of uh, our listeners who might not know. Yeah. Well, today I'm glad we're doing this interview. We're reopening Chicago. It's beautiful design spaces. That's focused. It's women centered, but we welcome all. And it's a place to support women, give them the space that inspires them to pursue their career and personal growth, but in a community setting to be supported. So I, it just spoke to me, you know, here I was at care providing a space for mental space. I call it presenteeism and time. And this was actual physical space. So it just fit and working closely with the founder, Lauren Kasten and the CEO, Jen Cho, it's so much fun. And then, of course, adding the experience that I've had around, as we touched on and just coming full circle when you started this interview, is the importance of my experience around diversity growing up overseas because the wing were opening locations internationally. So it's just incredible. And supporting diverse employees has been important to me, too, to expand the company. So I'm just happy to lend both my voice, my advocacy. Um, experience and leadership 
to help really grow this company. Yeah, it's so impressive just how you jumped into all these things. I, I'm sure <laughs> it, it helps from going back to that story, like your mom told you when she was your age, she had six kids. So you should <laughs> probably be able to handle all these, of course. Like, I'm sure like you, you know, a close friend said to me, oh my gosh, postcare.com, you live a plural life. And the only way to do that is leverage. We're reopening the wing. I'm interviewing Amy Wu at FTX, who's in crypto. We're launching my new podcast called Webbed, W-E-B, apostrophe D, and that that E is backwards three for for Web3. And But we're doing it all at the wing. So, So we're sort of bringing it all together. And, and it's a focus on interviewing one of um, impressive women in crypto. And then to just maybe also just do another plug too. I, I join an advising founding group of BFF, women in crypto. Mm. There's not enough. It's another thing I just want to do a plug on. If you are a woman and you're interested in crypto, come to myBFF.xyz and come and learn. It's really support and education. Yeah, I've seen, we had uh, Randy Zuckerberg and she's- ah focused on crypto and NFT and really getting women involved. I think I read a statistic, only 19% of- That is exactly right. Crypto users are are, are women, which- That's right. And we need to, and yet it's close to a $2 trillion industry, even with this slide downturn of past month. And how do we provide more access to women so that we're not left behind? And it's really important. And I've always said, you know, growth without inclusion isn't really growth. We need to, we need to make sure that people aren't left behind. And Randy is a friend. She's also founding BFF with me. So it's fun. We actually text each other close to every other day and and find ways to try and include um, more women in this in this journey. I love it. Well, you've both been on How Success Happens Now, which is fantastic. And I, I just want to thank you as a, um, a father of a 14 and 12-year-old today. She's 12. Wow. And having two girls and, and growing up in, you know, the 70s and 80s and a lot of, uh, you know, it was just a different world. But for them to have these opportunities, for the people like you championing these opportunities for women, even if I didn't have daughters, I, I would be so, so thankful and so grateful. And uh, I really wanted to thank you for coming on the show and sharing your experience and just keep doing what you're doing on the advocacy side. That, at the end of the day, really the legacy you can leave behind, right, is, is what you did for others. And I'm sure your parents are extremely proud. Robert, thank you. And thank you for what you're doing to highlight women. I mean, it's just incredible. I just want to keep plugging that. And you are one of the men, male role models that will make a difference. Thank you. Yes. So I appreciate it. Thanks again. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost, and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman. that's R-O-B-E-R-T-T-U-C-H-M-A-N, or even send me a message on LinkedIn. 
How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.